delighted that you're here. We have visitors with us. We're glad that you've come and hope you can come back and be with us again. Two weeks ago, we looked at a characteristic that we ought to have as part of our character. We talked about honesty. We raised four questions with reference to honesty in that study. What, on, what is honesty? Is it in your character? How do I apply it and how do I instill it? Let's take another principle concerning our character for our study this morning. Let's talk about humility. Let's start with looking at 2 Timothy 2, 23 and 24. This is Paul's writing to a young preacher, Timothy. And we'll say more about the context of this a little bit later. But he says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. While that is applicable to young Timothy as a preacher, being a servant of the Lord, and he must have these qualities, there is a sense in which all God's people are servants of the Lord. And like Timothy, we are to be humble servants of the Lord. That's a characteristic of a servant. So let's talk about humility. Here's the first thing. Let's define what we're talking about. What is humility? And we need to define that because sometimes there is a sense of false humility where one puts on a show of humility or a presentation of humility when actually there may not be any humility there at all. So what is humility? Let's take this English word first and then we'll go back to our original text. Dictionary.com says that humble means, we'll focus on this aspect of the definition, marked by meekness, modesty and behavior, attitude or spirit, not arrogant or prideful. We understand that. But I want to focus on one particular aspect in several definitions, and that is it's low in rank, quality or station, unpretentious, lowly, as an humble cottage. I want you to focus on this idea of low, lowly. The origin of the word comes from an old French or Latin, humilis or lowly, or from humus or ground. In other words, the word literally means to bring yourself down close to the ground. That's the idea of humility. So when we talk about being humble, what we're talking about is an inner quality where you bring yourself down to the ground. That's not where you deflate yourself and put yourself down before others and you deny any abilities that you have and you constantly criticize yourself. But in your spirit and in your attitude, you bring yourself down to the ground. That's the concept of that. Well, let's go further. Let's take this original word that is translated humble in our text. Strong says that it means to be, it's a, of uncertain derivation, means to be depressed, but I'm focused more upon the King James rendering of that, and we'll come back to this, base, cast down, humble, of low degree, or lowly. In fact, a number of times in the New Testament where the word low, or lowly, or low estate, is the same word that is translated humble in other texts. But let's go further. Vaughn says this, when he talks about the word humble, he simply means, and I'm not going to read the entire definition, but I want you to focus how many times he uses this expression like 
uh, low-lying, or he'll use the word low, cast down, lowly, lowly. And he's showing various places where it means simply of low degree or lowly. So again, it means to bring yourself down. Rather than lift yourself up, you bring yourself down to the ground. That's the idea. Well, there's another term having to do, very closely related to that, having to do with lowliness of mind or humbleness of mind, one translation would say. And again, without reading every part of this, lowliness of mind, humility, same word again, lowliness, bringing yourself down to the ground. But I want to focus upon Thayer's definition of this. I want you to notice that he, this aspect of his definition, not rising far from the ground. Again, low degree humility or low in spirit or humble. But not rising far from the ground. In other words, you don't lift yourself up as being better or superior, but you bring yourself down to the ground. Or you don't lift yourself far from the ground. Now that word that is translated humble, this is how it's translated in the King James rendering. Maybe this helps us to understand. The same word that's translated humble in 1 Peter 5 is translated of low degree. We'll go from the bottom up. Low degree in James chapter 4 or base. Here again, cast down. 2 Corinthians, humble. Romans chapter 12 in the New King James. Of low estate, low degree, or lowly. Again, you see that concept of coming down or being low. Let's look at some synonyms and some antonyms. When we talk about synonyms, what we're seeing is these are some synonyms to the word humble. That is being lowly or abase or cast down, unassuming, unpretentious, unassertive, meek. But here is the opposite of that. If we're not humble, we might be arrogant, we might be proud. But there's other terms that may give us that idea of being defiant. That's the opposite of humility. Being haughty, being lofty, overbearing or snobbish. We may not think, you know, I'm not arrogant and so I'm not, uh, I think I'm an humble person, but I might be defiant. That's an antonym to humility. Now that I have the idea, basically meaning coming down to the ground or not lifting yourself far from the ground, let's talk about an example of humility. Let's look at three texts that deal with Jesus as being the example of humility. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11 and in verse 29. Matthew chapter 11 and in verse 29. Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11 as being meek and lowly in heart. This is the great invitation. As you're turning there, let me remind you, this is where Jesus is extending the invitation. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look at verse 29 and then verse, and, and verse 30 with that. He said, or back verse 28 and 29. He said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, or gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now what's interesting is the New American Standard and the New International translates that humble in heart. Come unto me all ye that labor, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Lowly in heart. Jesus presents himself as being humble in heart. Now what's also interesting is this is in the context of the invitation. Jesus is not just saying, I'm an example that you should follow but he talks about his humility in the context of inviting people to come. In other words, that's given as a reason why one should be attracted and come to Jesus. 
They want to come to Jesus because he was one of great and deep humility. He's not harsh. He's not overbearing. He's not oppressive. In fact, one can easily obey him. Now, in that context, let's go back and look at verse 30, 28, 29, and 30 again. His invitation is, come to me, all you that labor and have your laden. You're coming with a load and a weight of sin. But when you, come, when you come to him, he said, take my yoke and learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For, last verse, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In other words, when, I, when you come to me with your burden of sin, you can deal with what I tell you to do. You can carry the load. You can obey and you can serve. I'm not oppressive. I'm not overbearing. I'm not harsh. Well, let's go to another text where Jesus is presented as an example of humility. Notice in Philippians 2, we'll say more about the context toward the end of our study and application, but let's get the principle of his humility in chapter 2 of Philippians, beginning at verse 5. He said, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon him the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, <clears throat> even the death of the cross. All right, here we have his humbleness or his humility having to do with his willingness to die. So here's what we're seeing in Philippians chapter 2. It's a context of humility being essential to unity. We'll come back to that toward the end of our study in verses 1 to 4. But I want you to notice, at beginning at verse 5, he urges them to have the same attitude. Look at verse 5. Let this mind or this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. He just talked about humility in verses 1 to 4. So let this attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what was the attitude that was described? Well, notice he talks about what he was or who he was and what he did in spite of that. Who was he? Well, notice he says now at verse four, verse 6, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, it's an affirmation of his deity. He did not consider it seizing something that did not belong to him, that's robbery, to be considered God. For him to call himself God, he was not seizing a title that didn't belong to him. It does belong to him. So it's an affirmation of his deity. So he was equal with God. He was in the form of God. Yet, what did he do? Well, notice that he became man. In spite of the fact that he was God, verse 6, he made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, verse 5, even the death of the cross. So here is his example of humility. Even though he was God, even though he was above all others, he became man, took the form of a servant, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Still talking about the same example, Jesus. Let's go to another instance of his humility in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, here is an example of his humility in washing the disciples' feet. Washing the disciples' feet was a classic example of his deep humility. I want you to notice this was done when he washed the disciples' feet with an awareness of his own exalted position. That is, he didn't just forget about that, oh, I forgot I am the Son of God, I forgot I'm deity, and that's why I stooped to this low, because if I'd have remembered that, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have stooped so low. Notice at verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand, 
and that he had come from God and was going to God. He remembered who he was. He remembered his deity. He remembered his exalted position. But in spite of that, I want you to notice that he girded himself. Verse 4, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. He dressed like a servant. He remembered who he was. He remembered his mission. He remembered he came from heaven. He's going back to heaven. He remembers his deity. He remembers all eternity. But yet he girded himself with a towel and he dressed like a servant. Let's go further. Look at verse 5. What did he do? And after that, he poured the water in the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. In other words, he did the acts of a servant. Not only did he dress like one, Want to make the appearance of being a servant, appearance of humility? He did an humble act. He did the acts of a servant. Now let's drop down to verse 8. Having done that, the purpose was to show his work served humanity. That's what he's doing. Now notice beginning at verse 8, he said, And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. You're not going to do that. And Jesus answered and said, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. His point seems to be that I am coming to serve humanity in my mission and the things that I'm doing. This is the kind of thing I'm doing is serving humanity. Now, in application of that, here's the lesson that we learned. We might, sir, humbly, we must rather sir, humbly serve other people. Notice beginning at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and he'd taken the garments and he sat down again, he said to them, do you, not, do you know what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. But if I then, being your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That continues on through verse 17. In other words, here's the lesson you learned. I've humbly served you. That's what I'm doing in my mission on earth, and you must humbly serve others as well. What a classic example of humility. Now, I know what humility is. Humility means that I don't lift myself up much from the ground, and if I have, then I come back down close to the ground. Keep ourselves lowly. And I see the greatest example of humility three times, at least in the New Testament, Jesus is presented. Let's talk about the demand for humility. God demands us to be humble. So let's just begin listing some passages, starting with one in the Old Testament. Let's go to the book of Micah, chapter 6. Micah 6 is a court scene where uh, Judah is called to court, God summons them to court as if to settle a score between God and Judah. And the first question that is asked in verses 3 to 5, what have I done to you? What, what charges do you have against me? You're going away from me, so what charges do you have against me? And the answer, of course, is they don't have any charge. Now the question is, what did you do? And then the question comes, what did God expect of you? So let's look at verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord God require of you? God has told you what he required of you. List three things. To do justly. Secondly, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. That was the very thing Judah was failing to do. So in other words, I'm learning from that, God requires us to walk humbly before our God. We're just going to list a number of passages where God demands humility. Let's see it in the context. Well, that was the Old Testament. And I, before we leave, though, Micah, I might suggest to you what was going on with Judah is they were rebelling against God. 
Which means they were not humbly walking before God. They were pushing against the requirements of God. They were pushing against the, the, uh, the commandments of God. And they were rebelling and doing pretty much what they wanted to do. And that is a form of arrogance. And that is not humility. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18 now. This is in the context of the disciples arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom. Who has the most prominent position. Who is the most important. It's a materialistic concept of the kingdom. And who's going to maybe sit at the right hand? Who's going to sit at the left hand? Who's going to be the treasurer? Who's going to be the secretary of state? Who's going to be so on and down the line? Who's going to have all those prominent positions? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus said, unless you be converted and become his little children, reading at verse 3, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. If you don't change your attitude, you're not even going to be in the kingdom. Look at verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be great and useful and prominent in the kingdom, then bring yourself down to the ground. The disciples weren't doing that. Let's go to another. Let's go to Romans 12. Now, this is interesting because Romans 12 begins the section about the Christian and his relationships. And it's interesting that early in the relationships, having to do with our relationship to God... Then he starts into our relationship with fellow man in chapter 12. That in that relationship, God demands humility. How so? Look at verse 3. For I say through the grace of God given to me, to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't think of yourself more highly. Don't lift yourself up above the ground. In other words, bring yourself back down to the ground. That's humility. Let's go further. But to think soberly, interesting, soberly, what does it mean? Commensurate with what abilities that you have, as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith, that is your abilities. So don't lift yourself up as being greater, more important, like in the days of spiritual gifts, I have tongues, I'm more important than you are. All you can do is prophesy, but I can speak in tongues, I'm more important. I think God will put me at the right hand in the kingdom, maybe. Don't lift yourself up so high, but rather bring yourself down and think of yourself commensurate with what abilities that you have. We'll make application of that in a moment. Same chapter now, verse 16. Still dealing with relationships all through the chapter. Be of the same mind to one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Several things in that verse. Let's start at the end of the verse first. Look at the end of verse 16. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Again, don't lift yourself up higher than you really are. Here's a phrase that's quite interesting at verse 16. Do not mind high things. In other words, don't be overly impressed with the high and the mighty things, but associate with the humble. King James would say, condescend to men of low estate. Don't ever think yourself too good to associate with this person or to do this task or to spend time with someone. You're never too good for that. Condescend to men of low estate. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3 now. Again, God demands humility for us. Let's see how that fits in the context. Colossians chapter 3 talks about, as does Ephesians, you remember those are parallel books, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. You put off the old manner of life before becoming a child of God. Colossians 3 now and in verse 12, um, Notice in Colossians, I'm in Ephesians. Go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. 
as he talks about putting on the new man, the new manner of life, therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. What does that lead to? Well, we'll come back to that later. It comes, it leads to bearing with one another in love. But put on and clothe yourself with humility is the idea. That's part of the new man. That was not a part of the old man, the old manner of life. Now let's go to Titus chapter 3 and in verse 2. Titus chapter 3 and in verse 2. Paul tells Timothy, now this is interesting because he puts, makes a contrast in, in, in the context. That to speak evil, here's, here's what you ought to do. You speak evil of no one, but be gentle, showing humility toward all men. That's interesting. Don't just show humility toward some, but then you show pride or arrogance toward someone else, but show humility toward all men, toward brethren, toward family, toward friends, toward enemies, toward your fellow employees, schoolmates. Show humility toward all men. Now here's the contrast. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. Here's the contrast. Here's what you ought to do, Titus. Titus, you ought to be gentle and humble toward all men. But we didn't always do that before we became Christians. What do you mean, Paul? We ourselves were once foolish. When you're not humble, you're foolish. Disobedient, deceiving, serving various lusts, pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. That is, we mistreated people. We were not showing humility at times. But we changed, and we changed by the grace of God. Now let's go to the book of James. Let's go to the book of James, chapter 4. Notice he talks about pride. This is part of friendship with the world. Uh, pride is a part of friendship with the world. And in contrast to that, we ought to be humble. So notice what he says beginning at verse 6. He said, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, that is in light of that principle, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and warn and weep. Let the daughters be turned, uh, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's repentance. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Notice how that context threads together. We'll see more about that in just a second. Let's list another passage here. And let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. One last passage on this before we make some application. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God in view of how God is mighty and He's strength. He's one of strength. Notice beginning at verse 5. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders, be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility. Here's the idea of not just putting on a front of humility. Don't put on a veneer of humility as we talked about in the beginning. But clothe yourself. Be completely clothed and covered with humility. This is a part of your deep character. For God resists the proud but gives grace to humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. What we're wanting to see from all of these passages is God demands humility. Now, I know what humility is, and I know the example of humility, the ultimate example, the demands for it. Let's talk about the effect of humility. Let's just suppose that someone has not been humble, and they learn from a study like this or from their private study that I need to be humble, and they bring themselves back down to the ground. The question is, what difference does that make in their life? 
How, how will things be different? What effect does it have in their life? Uh, can, can we see a change? Can we see a difference in the person? Let's list some things that are part of the effect. Humility will have an effect of when we deal with those, and I put in quotations, those who may be less. Let's go back and make some application of these texts. Romans 16, or 12 and in verse 16. When we deal with those that we may think of as less, than our, maybe they, we think of them as having less education than we have. Maybe we think of them having less money than we have. They may be at, on a different social level than we are. Whatever the case may be, but they may be of a different family than we are. And maybe it's a family that we've, we've kind of, in our minds, we wouldn't say it, but we look down upon that family as being inferior to our family. To go back to our chapter 12 and in verse 16, the text says, do not mind high things. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble or condescend to men of low estate. Bring yourself down to their level. So the effect of it is that when I'm dealing with those that I might have a tendency to think of as being less than me, I bring myself down to their level. That might not be easy to do. That's the demand of the text. And we started with 2 Timothy chapter 2, so let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This was a, a letter written to young, young Timothy telling him the kind of preacher and teacher that he needed to be. So in chapter 2 and in verse 25, he said, uh, verse 24, a servant of God, must, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle, able to teach, patient. Here's the kind of qualities that are essential to be a teacher, preacher, in humility, he said, correcting those who are in opposition. We'll come back to that verse and talk about the opposition in a moment. But in teaching, there must be humility. Remember the, the invitation of the Lord, he invites people to come, and one of the attractiveness, attractive points about that was, you come to me because I am humble, I'm lowly in heart. Well, as a servant of the Lord, you are inviting your neighbor, your friend, as you're teaching a Bible class, you're inviting others to come to the Lord. And if they don't see that humility, perhaps that serves as an obstacle. What does that mean in teaching? Well, what, what's the point here in verse 25 in humility, correcting those in opposition? Well, in teaching someone, don't act like they are inferior to you. Don't act like the people you're talking are, are uh, beneath your learning. Don't act like they can't understand what you're talking about. They're too simple-minded. Deal with them in a way that comes across with humility as you teach your neighbor, your friend, your co-worker, or your Bible class, or whatever the case may be. We're coming back to 2 Timothy chapter 2 in just a moment. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And in verse... 8. 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 8. When we deal with our brethren, whatever it is we deal with, it might be um, some controversy. It might be just trying to get along and settle a point so we can have unity, harmony. Notice in this principle of applying holiness to every aspect of our lives, it applies to the family, but it also applies as we deal with one another. Beginning verse 8. Finally, brethren, be of one mind. That's the harmony and unity. Have compa having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Now notice the last one. Be courteous, New King James says. Notice your footnote and several other translations will say humble. Now interesting in dealing with one another, notice again the qualities. 
be of one mind, have unity, have compassion, care about others, love like your brethren, like your family, have tenderness toward one another, and be kind or be courteous or be humble. And then notice the next phrase, not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but contrary blessing. See how humility fits in dealing with brethren, particularly where there may be differences. Go back to 2 Timothy 2.25. In giving these qualities of what a preacher and a teacher needed to be, in humility, correcting opposition. When dealing with opposition, there are going to be people that will oppose you. There are going to be people who oppose what you do and how you live and, and what you say and what you teach and what you instruct. When someone asks you, why do you do what you do and you tell them, they're going to oppose that. And so in teaching or dealing with opposition, there needs to be humility. There's another principle. Let's go back to chapter 12 and in verse 3. We need to have humility when we excel or when we are strong. Let's go back to chapter 12. We touched on this lightly, but we didn't define that. Let's go to the end of the verse. As God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. What is that measure of faith? Well, commentators may vary over that but a common thought, and I think is the correct thought, that the measure of faith has to do with one's ability based upon faith. Faith is related to abilities. It may have application to spiritual gifts. It may have application to natural gifts. But let's go back now at verse, verse 3 and see what he's saying. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think soberly as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Don't lift yourself up higher than what you really are, but don't then put yourself lower than the abilities God gave you. God gave you the ability, for example, to teach. Admit that and use that ability. But don't think you're better than everybody else either. Don't lift yourself up, but then don't put yourself lower. All right, let's go back and make some application. When we excel or strong, maybe when we have a great ability, and we excel in some areas, or we're strong in some area, this verse is warning that it might be easy to lift yourself high, higher than what you really think you, than really you should be. And so rather than do that, be humble and think of ourselves commensurate with our abilities. Now let's make application here and the lesson will be yours. When we're striving for unity and harmony, there's going to be times when, when things are pulling in the opposite directions. There may be friction among brethren. There may be differences to arise. Differences of opinion. There might be even differences in doctrine. And in every effort, we should strive toward harmony and unity. And that's what Philippians 2 is talking about. So let's talk about unity and harmony. I said we'd come back to Philippians 2. We've looked at the example of Christ in Philippians 2. We'll say more about that in a moment. But let's look at verses 1 through 4. Here is a plea for unity in verses 1 through 4. In fact, in the context. Let's go back earlier in the context. Chapter 1 in verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or may be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one faith, and here's our expression, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Well, there was some friction going on at, at Philippi. Yodian Sintiki, where it was, chapter 4 and verse 2, were there other things that were causing friction, perhaps? But he said, I want you to stand fast in the one spirit with one mind striving together. There needs to be harmony and unity. Now chapter 2 and in verse 2, same context. Fulfill my joy to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. There's harmony. 
So here's the plea for unity. Now then, here's the basis for that unity. Since, that's the force of verse 1, therefore, if there is any consolation. Some translations will say, since, that's the force of it. He's not questioning, I'm not sure if there is consolation, but if there is. But since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, and since there is fellowship of the Spirit, and since there is affection of mercy, since you have that, and they have that, and you have that, then here is the attitude that is essential to accomplish that. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only upon his own interest, but also on the interest of others. Now let's notice the contrast we just saw in verses 3 and 4. What a contrast. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. It's going to be my way or it's not going to be anybody else's way. You do it my way or we're not doing it at all. I'm interested in my pleasing myself. Let nothing be done through conceit, verse 3, where I lift myself up above. Don't look just at your own interest, how this affects me, what I want. But in lowliness of mind, that's in contrast to the selfish ambition. Esteem others in contrast to the conceit of esteeming self. Now look at verse 4. Look not up, uh, uh, not, uh, let not each one of you look up on his own interest, but up on the interest of others. In contrast to looking at everything just for yourself, think about other people. That's humility. What a contrast between those two. Let's list one more passage and we're through. In Ephesians chapter 4, while we're talking about the striving for unity and harmony, Ephesians 4 talks about some essentials to unity. Verses 4 to 6, there's some facts that are essential, as we often call them. The one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. We ought to be united because we all have the same God. We all have the same baptism. We all have the same everything thing that's mentioned in that context. But there's some attitudes that are essential to unity, and that's verses 1 through 3. And let's see what that is. He said, therefore, the prison of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of your calling by which you're called with all lowliness of mind. And notice this is in the context right here of endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about in the context. With lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility is essential to having unity and harmony within the body of Christ. What have we seen in our study this morning? It's part of our character. Honesty, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And here we're focusing on humility. Humility as a part of our character. We've seen what humility is. We saw Jesus as the prime example of humility God demands us to be humble, and then we see how it fits into our life. As we teach, as we relate to brethren, as we relate to about differences, as we strive for harmony and unity, as we deal with opposition, on down the line, every aspect of our life, God demands that we exemplify humility. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?